It's been shaped by this cruciform love of God, a love a God that would rather die for his enemies and kill his enemies. Mm. She's been shaped by that. She's raising her daughter like that. And so her daughter has been brought into this inverse world where we actually love people who do bad mm. things to us. Hey everybody, it's David here. Today's a special episode for us. It's a twinsy episode. Much like what we did with our dear friend Jonathan Martin, this conversation engaged us so much that we, both here at Inverse and Johnny Clark at Guardians of the Flame, which is a podcast but also a feature-length documentary about religion and terrorism, we both wanted to release this together. So this conversation goes out into both of our worlds. Also, Tuesday the 2nd of April, Jared's going to be at Vantage Point Church in Melbourne recording a live Inverse podcast with Father Bob and the Reverend Tim Costello. So if you live in Melbourne or the surrounding areas, pop that into your diary and come along and say hi. So we hope you enjoy the conversation and we will see you on the other side. I'm in Narnia. Well, at least <laughs> I'm in the place that C.S. Lewis wrote to his brother, yeah? Yeah, he wrote a letter to his brother. Saying that when he imagines Narnia, he thinks about where we are right now. Ross yeah, Trevor. yeah. Where the where the Mourn Mountains come down to the village of Ross Trevor. For me, that is Narnia. Wow, and uh, we're at Ancoan, which is this incredible um, little hub of reconciliation uh, on the border between um, uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland. And I'm here with my mate Fra, who was kindly doing uh, all the sound for us. Thank you, Fra, and. Uh, um, with Johnny Clark, who is kind of like, I don't think you'd use the language like this here, but uh, y- you'd be the, um, you're like Elder Zosima to this community, <laughs> um, for those that know Brother Karamazov. So um, Johnny's kind of like the, uh, you kind of steer this ship, which is yeah. cool. Tell us a little bit about where we are. Yeah, so, um, yeah, well, in terms of ge- geographically, we're at the foot of the Mourn Mountains um, in, a, in a lovely little village called Ross Trevor. Um, just above us is an ancient oak forest. Ireland doesn't have a lot of trees. We cut them all down in the last hundred years. And, Johnny, you were telling me that of all the nations in Europe, Ireland and Northern Ireland have some of the fewest trees now. Yeah, yeah. Wow. We, we really don't have a lot, so... Um, which is tragic, I mean, because the Celts loved the oak tree especially. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful country. When you fly in, it's green fields and tapestry of green. It would be nice if there was a few more trees in that green, you know. Yeah. Um, And in terms of Celtic mythology, it it functions in the creation stories, the the oak and the the seed. And also, but like describing Narnia... Uh-huh. The forest here, um, yeah. uh, some of the things that people imagine. So it's kind of sad. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, Johnny Mitchell obviously famously said they paved paradise to put up a parking lot. And uh, <laughs> there's uh, property developers have just been given permission to build an underground car park and multi story apartments at the foot of the ancient oak forest, right, right over there, um, you know, th- a quarter of a mile from this building. And, uh, and literally, you know, they, they have paved paradise paved to, the, to stick an underground car park in, you know. And uh, so, it, you know, it's very sad. If you go up the Oak Forest, uh, on the other side is a big stone. In Irish, big stone is Clockmore. 
Um, so some people call it the clock more stone, but that would literally mean big stone Sun stone. stone. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, which, you know, in mythology, that's Finn McCall through that from the Cooley Mountains over there, the other side of Carlingford Loch, which is where we, we sit. Mm. Um, many would believe that C.S. Lewis never said anything about the stone, but if this is his version of Narnia, that big stone looks eerily similar to what we imagine Aslan being uh, killed on the stone mm. table at the end of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, so that's the kind of the area we are. This is this building is a Victorian mansion that was an old Lord's summer residence. Mm. That in 1974, a guy called Cecil Kerr bought pretty cheaply at the height of the Troubles, probably the darkest days of Northern Ireland's Troubles, to be a centre for reconciliation. He was also a char- theologically a charismatic, and it, so it became a real epi- epicenter of the charismatic renewal, mm. and also a place of of reconciliation, Protestants and Catholics would gather and encounter each other and encounter the Holy Spirit. Uh, in 2010, um, uh, I was my uh, community was given this. I had been leading a Christian community under part of the organization, the evangelical, largely evangelical organization, Youth with a Mission. Uh, but I've been running a kind of peacemaking community in the Shankill and Falls Roads in Belfast, mm. North and West Belfast. So um, we had for eight years been offering scholarships to young people from areas of conflict, particularly Palestinians, Israelis, Lebanese, and quite a lot of Zulus from South Africa, Mm. Uh, as well as, you know, over the years we've had Syrians, Ugandans, Sri Lankans, as well as Protestants and Catholics and people from around the world. So in Belfast, we had a whole bunch of houses. We were renting. We were dirt poor. Uh, We had houses on either side of Belfast peace walls. So Belfast has dozens of peace walls. These are kind of big corrugated iron structures, uh, you know, very high that separate communities, particularly yeah. in working class areas. And um, and ironically, and, they're called peace wars because they, they keep the peace, keep not the make peace. the peace. Yeah, and I mean, our big peace agreement was in 1998, the Good mm. Friday Agreement. And now let's we talk about Brexit if you want, but Brexit will obviously could imperil that peace. But even in spite of where, in spite of that, where we are now, I remember we did research, market research, not market research, like uh, knocking on people's doors, yeah. unprofessionally asking them, "What do you think about peace in Ireland? Do you think there'll be peace in Belfast for, for both sides?" And uh, people, almost everyone said, "Oh yeah, there's peace. It's going to be peace." And then we said, "Do you think um, they'll ever get rid of these peace walls?" And almost to a person, it was like, oh, no, 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 we'll never get rid of the peace walls. And we said, do you want them to get rid of the peace walls? And, we, and they said, oh, no, 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 we, they keep us safe, you know. Mm. So there's this idea of peace is really, you know, nobody's getting blown up really anymore. Well, very, very occasional incidents. But yeah. generally there's relative peace and people can live in their divided communities and but don't push it any further than that. So the idea of... Uh, peace being something different than just an absence of violence, you know, is not a reality here, you know. And yeah. I think that's the next level. You know, in the middle of a conflict, when bombs are going off, you pray and work for a day when when no one will be killed anymore, you know. Yeah. The next step is then to say, can we actually build a, a, a community in this land of shalom, of, of mm. uh, you know, where actually we love our neighbors and we love our enemies you know and and that's 
a level we've certainly not got to. Uh, and yet it's your vocation and calling in yeah. terms of here and what you're seeking to foster. And, yeah. and it's, I mean, some people may have seen the documentary you made in terms of Guardians of the Flame mm-hmm. about the conflict here and have uh, uh, heard your tones and lilt um, through... Oh, yeah. Uh, through the documentary or through your podcast, which um, some people might have heard um, me on by the same name, Guardians of the Flame. Um, uh, But your tones and lilts, they're not just Irish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a funny accent. So I spend most of my life... Like if you added up all the conversations I've ever had about my accent, <laughs> I've misspent a lot of my life. <laughs> uh, so I was born in New Zealand. So, uh, you know, it's funny, Jared, me, you're Aussie, I'm a Kiwi originally. Your forebears are Irish Catholics. My forebears are Northern Irish Protestants. So this is the so, Ministry of Reconciliation yeah, right, right here. here. Yeah. Aussies yeah. laying down yeah. <laughs> next to Kiwis, yeah. Irish Catholics. We each next have to our own vine to sit under. Uh, live in peace tree, and yeah. other parade. We're like we're prophetic action, yeah, right? Here. We, we are. Yeah, we are. So yeah. So when I was, um, I mean, this might tie into where you want to go with your interview. But when I was eight years old, my parents felt called to missions and mm. to become missionaries. And my dad was 49. My mom was in her 40s. They had four four kids. I was the youngest at the age of eight. So it wasn't the thing that most 49-year-old dads would be doing. It's sure. getting on a Pan Am flight, putting your house up for sale, and moving to become missionaries with an organization that you're not going to get paid for for the rest wow. of your life. Yeah. And given the house in New Zealand we had was looked out over the Manukau Harbor. Wow. Grapes. We had grapefruit, oranges, apple. It was beautiful. A swimming pool. My dad was a school teacher. Oh. Wasn't loaded, but like, you know, um, uh, so, you know, that was my childhood. So I moved over here and my accent just morphs, to be honest. Whenever I talk <laughs> to people, we I'm married to an American. That gives a little bit of that there, I'm afraid, you know, keeps me, keep, <laughs> keeps me humble. <laughs> keeps me humble, you know. So, um, but other than that, Jen's great, right? Yeah, other than that, Jen's great. Jen We're, is great. Jen's my to, beloved to wife. American friends that don't pick up on Kiwi and Aussie sarcasm. We love you dearly. Yeah, I know. We, we really do. Um, so, uh, yeah. And so that's where my accent comes from. So I moved here, um, after a year and a half in England, we moved here in August 84. So I've lived here ever since. So Mm. those were the days of, um, (laughs) as soon as I said that, I was like, those were the days of miracle and wonder. wonder. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Those were the days of the troubles. Those were, those were days as a little New Zealand boy who was used to going to school with shorts and a t-shirt. I'm suddenly living in a significantly colder, damper country where the army would drive by in in vans and I'd see a guy at the back with his big machine gun and, you know, it was very bizarre. You know, the first day of school in Northern Ireland, um, I sat next to a kid and he said to me, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? And I didn't know I, uh, what I was, you know. I, you know, and and I said, well, I go to. The, I went. To, we just moved here. I went to this really boring church down the road. And he goes, oh, that's okay. You're a Protestant. So wow. I was in. You know, I was. In. That was literally the first question I was asked. You know, wow. are you Protestant or Catholic? Um, so the funny thing is that was a little village called Upperlands. It's about halfway between Belfast and Derry, London Derry. My forebears, the Clarks, were the the linen barons of that area. So they all had linen mansions. Um, my great-great-grandfather 
was the next in line to inherit the the fortune and but he he kind of married under the stairs as they say he married the <laughs> governess you know and it wasn't a done thing for a, a upper class clerk to to marry a working class wow. maid so it was suggested to him that after a cathedral wedding in England he would take a boat to New Zealand and start a new life which is what he did incredible Interestingly, he missed the boat, which is a great sermon story. Uh, he missed the boat. If anyone knows my timekeeping, you won't be surprised that it runs in the in the genes. But um, he missed the boat. But the boat he missed uh, hit a storm off the Cape of Good Hope, and every single person on the boat died. Wow! Um, which I heard recently from my uh, cousin Bruce Clark, who, wow. who uh, is a researching works for the Economist, right. um, and he's a. He's a great guy. We could talk about Bruce for a long time. But um, <laughs> One of the things I really yeah. enjoyed last time I was here with you was um, we went hunting for some of my family yeah, and uh, yeah, you took yeah. me through that area yeah. um, and got to see some of your family history. So yeah, the Maketeers, yeah, yeah. which is the, um, my grandmother's side of the family, we were going to where she was born and um, we got to see all of that. Johnny, I love the fact that um, inverse People are starting to um, know the rhythms of the mm. interviews itself mm. and you even hinted at where the interview might go. Um, I love that we've got into your story and your mm. ancestry. Mm. Um, as people have now started asking me, when do you first remember encountering mm. the mm. Bible? Mm. Um, because it's often where we start. Um, uh, in that story of your parents like selling up a you know, what many would consider a very successful middle-class life where you have the Kiwi dream or the Australian dream or the dream of many places to own your own place, to maybe have a little bit of fruit growing in the backyard, views of a bay. I mean, that's... And they give all that up. But what do you remember of encountering the Bible? Was it part of your childhood? Um, Is it something that you remember introduced later on? Yeah, I mean... I certainly remember the Bible um, from an early age. My dad was very was a lovely, kind, gentleman, mm. um, but very quite meticulous. Like he would he would read the Bible every day to us before school, or he had the Living Light or the Daily Light, oh. um, and he would read a little passage almost every day before school. Wow. I often compare myself to my dad, and you know I don't read the Bible to my kids every morning. You know, I should maybe. <laughs> But so the Bible was always present, and it was always a kind of a positive thing because those verses don't, um, you know, those little daily light things don't usually kind of include the, um, uh, what do you call the imprecatory psalms? Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they don't include the, uh, you know, would you smash our enemies' babies against babies the... would be smashing No, yeah. it's all like, you know, you can do it. God's with you. <laughs> <laughs> He's great. And so yeah. the Bible was kind of like a positive presence in my life Hmm. Um, but I don't remember I I was once asked in a group when did God become more than a name to you and I realized it wasn't until my parents moved to England when I was eight years old became missionaries didn't know what that was didn't know what they were doing Hmm. I just knew I was on a plane I was quite excited as an eight-year-old I was going to get to see an airplane and they said to sweeten the deal they said we'd go to Disneyland on the way so I got like a day in Disneyland in LA yeah so for me as an eight-year-old, I was like, yep, I'm up, sign me up, I'll move to the other <laughs> side of the world. Um, my what, other, what, do you, what did you know of Northern Ireland at the time? Oh, I knew nothing. So we initially came to England for a year and a half. Mm. I actually knew nothing. Literally, like I was eight, I, was, 
I was a simple New Zealand kid who yeah. liked grapefruit from my tree you know, we had and <laughs> liked to run and uh you know so but um so you know it was but when we moved over here it was a bit of a jolt to the system once I got off the airplane you sure. know and you're like wow this is a bit different what's happening and we we moved from this big house to living in a two-bedroom apartment on, on a YWAM base um there were all these people around, which was very exciting from different countries, all to be there to be missionaries. And so my, um, I began to th- realize that I began to have a sense that God was real. Um, and I remember going to a conference in 83 uh, in Austria and standing up at the front saying, I want to give my life to Jesus and I want to serve him or something. Wow. And How I old have you been? I was seven or eight. I was probably wow. eight, eight years old. You know, I still remember that. So you, you know? had no idea what you were saying. No, I didn't. And see, that would be my story, I suppose, is that at that time in those years, I would have understood the Bible, you know, as a kind of a flat book. I would have understood faith and God as a as this ever-present help in time of trouble until we get until we get to escape earth and go up to huh. heaven. And that escape into heaven was would have taken me through my childhood you know at times i would have had you know but i did see in the midst of even though i'd say belief wise i was quite shallow um i watched my parents live extraordinary lives of love for people in northern ireland especially when we moved here wow and you know doctrine wise they were fairly conservative but their hearts were as big as big as a you know, like the the phrase I hear in, when I go to South Africa, their, their hearts were as big as a, as an African bus. You know, there's always hmm. room for one more. You know, wow. Um, so uh, I saw them bring in. You know, for instance, there was a guy who was in the param- loyalist paramilitaries, and he was on the run. Mm. He was an alcoholic. He had just kind of was trying to find some kind of faith. They took him into his house as a kid. I never felt unsafe, but I remember hearing him come in drunk at night you know for you know a couple of weeks staggering around furniture falling over i never felt unsafe but i remember hearing dad you know talking to this guy and trying to calm him down and and after two weeks he started to look different and he stopped coming in drunk and um and his life changed they got him a job cutting the lawns at a local church and i saw my parents live an extraordinary life where they could have been living you know, the New Zealand dream of a nice house in Auckland. Instead, they were welcoming loyalist paramilitaries into their home <laughs> wow. with drinking problems, you know. And and they just were kind, good people, you know. And um, I began to realize there's something real about this life, you know. So it sounds like the Bible was kind of in the air and not something so much you read on the pages, but you read in your parents' yeah. lives of service and yeah. and simple but quite radical love for yeah. people that yeah. are actually pretty hard to love. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and it was a time where this country was so polarized. And the fact that they were from New Zealand really was a, it was a huge bonus because they didn't carry the ingrained sectarianism that oh. local people did. And I always was the same, even though I became... I almost became a Protestant Northern Irish kid. 
I always had this kind of Kiwi upbringing, this kind of external perspective. My parents were bringing Protestants and Catholics into their living room to pray together. There was, you know, there was... And it's kind of hard to understand because people listening to this um, Mm. maybe in in Canada or New Zealand or Australia um, uh, might be hearing this and going, oh, it was a religious difference. We're not talking about Mm. religious difference. Mm. We're, We're talking about class we're talking about narrative how you understand yourself Mm. we're talking about realities of discrimination Mm. um, uh, who holds power who's in parliament and those kind of divisions and that's why you get jokes here like um, are you protestant or catholic (laughs) i'm atheist yeah but are you a protestant or catholic atheist because it's not it's not really about religion we're talking about conflict which runs so deeply and religion almost becomes the descriptor of what largely holds those two very different communities in common yeah yeah no very much i mean i was on the radio recently talking about this film i've made and you know the talk the call in callers were i'm sick of people saying that the troubles were about religion you know Mm. it was about culture it was about all these other things which is in many ways is true it would be absurd to say that people were shooting people over the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception or, you know, <laughs> or throwing petrol bombs over, I saw you do a rosary, you know, Mary, you know, <laughs> you, you know, it just wasn't that. But religion was massively used by both sides mm. as a, either justification for, uh, for their actions or a, just, you know, or, or a reason why we must hate the other side, you know. Which is fascinating for me because... Um uh, in terms of the question, was the Bible something that propped the world up as the way it is, or did it turn mm. the world upside down? You were living mm. a, in a reality where, I guess, in your parents' life, mm. you saw one answer to that question. In larger society, you saw the other. How did? How would you answer that question? Was it something that um, mm. uh, was liberating or oppressive? The Bible, as yeah. it was experienced in. Your childhood. I think it was liberating. You know, I mean, there was. T- I mean, I also loved to read the book of First and Second Samuel as a kid. <laughs> I loved David. I loved it when he, you know, killed all those people. You know, I, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, it, my nonviolent now kind yeah. of as a poet at my ch- childhood Bible reading. But at least I'm, I, I read the Bible. You know. Um, but in the same way that kids love the stories about like giants like Finn McCool and yeah, like yeah. No, how I, the giant's causeway was made, I didn't kind of go to school kinda... thinking I need to kill someone because I just read David doing it, you know, like <laughs> uh, you know, or I need to have a few wives. But you know, it was just a, <laughs> it was just an exciting kind of story, you yeah. know. So no, but in in the lives of my parents, I saw the Bible and their faith be something that was utterly countercultural. In, in where I was living. Um, there, maybe a clear example was in the late 80s, um, there was a mortar bomb, uh, early 90s, there was a mortar bomb. And a policeman, and my parents were working at that time in a church in Belfast, in East Belfast, called St. Mary's in Ballybean, the Ballybean Estate. It's a very loyalist estate. Very, loyalist is the word for working class Protestants, by the way. And what they're loyal to? Is they're loyal to the crown, to the queen, um, uh, as opposed to Republicans that wanted to separate from the United Kingdom and become a republic of... So nothing uh, to do with the Republicans no, in the US, no, everything to do with the United Island. Yeah, yeah. So, um, But my parents were working at this church, particularly my dad. He spent a lot of time just visiting people. We just visit old people, particularly uh, a lot of people as they were sick in hospital. Um, that was for a few years. He, he just was being kind to people, basically. It was mm-hmm. his job. And... Um, 
And one day on the other side of town, um, in the markets area, which is a very Republican area, there was a police van going through the area, and a, a guy from my parents' church was in the van over in the markets. And yeah. the IRA shot a mortar bomb, it landed on his van, and he was blown out of the van, and he was killed. Um, he had four young kids, I think, under the age of five at the time. Um, at the same time, walking through the markets was a member of a local Catholic parish called St. Malachy's Parish. And as he saw this guy dying on the side of the road, he cradled him in his arms. And afterwards, he said he felt like he was ushering him into heaven. Mm. And the thing is, people from the the loyalist neighborhood, neighborhood in East Belfast would never dream of going to the Republican area of the markets, certainly never going to St. Malachy's mm. Roman Catholic Church. But after this guy was killed, the, my dad went and visited the St. Malachy's because this is where this atrocity just happened. You know, this, I mean, it was a war. It was a conflict. Mm. It's, I don't want to, yeah, it's complex. But yeah. this is where it happened. So we went and he met this guy who had been basically trying to recruit people in the area to come to a local parish mission. And he said to my dad, would you bring some people from your area where this guy's just been, uh, where he was from, to come to our mission this week, this Friday, mm. and maybe you could carry the Bible in, you know. And, and so my mm. dad went and, wow. and he, he went to um, talk to three or four real loyalist Protestant guys and said, would you come to this Catholic area, go to a Catholic church, and maybe we'll even carry the Bible up, proceed up to the front and put it on the altar at the beginning. Would, would you like to do that? And they said, in our wildest dreams, we would never do that, John. Yeah. We've never done it. But because you're asking, we'll do it. So days after uh, a Protestant man is, is killed, a father of four young kids, um, in the wake of that, uh, motivated by faith and a God that loves his, loves his enemies, um, my dad led uh, three or four Protestant men to go to that area to reach out to their neighbors, to walk into a church where they would never have dreamed of. None of them had ever been into a Catholic church in their wow. life. But they do so five days after, you know, three or four days after the killing of one of their own people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, I watched my parents turn their faith, their reading of the Bible did indeed turn the world upside down. It turned wow. Northern Ireland upside down. Yes. You know? yeah. um, and so, you know, it was countercultural. You know, Brian, what does Brian Zahn say? God... Um, showed he'd rather um, die for his enemies and kill his enemies, uh-huh. you know. And um, and I, I think in my parents, uh, I observed a self-sacrificial love, and and it it made me go deeper. Uh, over the years, I my faith started to change, uh, mm. but you know, uh, as I read Aussies like uh, Dave Andrews and John Smith, <laughs> and heard them speak, and yeah. you know, and uh, Tony Campolo was a big influence back in the 90s. And and you grew up with and were of the same ilk of people um, who went on to the US, and because they're in the US, mm. um, there's larger platforms and that kind uh, of yeah, stuff yeah. than um, this sweet, small uh, country yeah, yeah, here. Yeah. But um, so Pete Rollins and... Um, uh, Gareth Higgins. Gareth Higgins. Yeah, and yeah. Um, th- these are literally yeah. the friends that you yeah, were in we, Bible studies we, yeah, with. And yeah, we used to live together at university, Queen's University. Gareth and me were, went to school together. Um, we uh, were in French class together. And then uh, and then 
Pete um, had just become a Christian at our church in East Belfast, CFC, and was a kind of brand new Christian. Christian. And, uh, you know, Pete, Pete's doing loads of stuff now. And he's a gem of a guy. You know, they're <laughs> both great people. But, you know, we've all been shaped in different ways and we're shaped yeah. by our, the landscape of our lives. And But it's, know. I think it's interesting to actually, and when Pete and I um, talk about it, um, uh, I think because my family's connection here, there are different conversations that we have um, than he would have with people in the the US mm. because knowing something of the mm. like in my family's neighbourhoods here there are Palestinian flags while in the side of town you would have grown up there'd be Israeli flags and that's because the different sides of the conflict identify with those different yeah. sides yeah, um, very much so. uh, the difference between the tricolour being found everywhere mm. versus the Union Jack mm. being found everywhere um, different songs different so in, in a very real sense, um, whatever Protestant means and whatever Catholic means here, they are things that are found in a larger, almost register mm. of um, social mm. moorings, and mm. um, and it's kind of hard for people elsewhere to even understand why would you, why would you hate someone yeah. just because? Yeah, last when we have South McKenna, Africans here, right? when we have South Africans here, they they think it's funny because we all kind of look the same. <laughs> Although, of course, some people say we don't look the same. You know, well, that's right. Uh, you know, Fra, Fra, Fra and I, See, we're, different. we're talking. Um, that uh, I was telling Fra last time I was here. Someone says, "Oh yeah, you look Catholic," and I didn't know if that was a compliment or yeah, a, I didn't yeah. know how to. I was no, like, it's usually not you? a compliment. If it's, yeah, yeah, if it's said like that, you know, if it's a Protestant, you know, <laughs> saying that. Um, no, but Fry's a very good-looking guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but but even in terms of um, like the civil rights movement here, which Bloody Sunday, which people may know because mm. of you two, mm. or they may know because of the film, mm. um, or they may know because of um, uh, Prince Charles' association mm. with mm. the brigade that was mm. actually in, involved, and when those things actually came out, um, that the civil rights movement here. Um, was the movement seeking to un- unite the country and mm. there were Protestants and Catholics mm. involved. Mm. But with the slaughter of, what was it, 13 mm. um, or 14 people mm. who died Cover. in Derry, yeah. that um, suddenly it was the biggest recruitment drive mm. that the IRA had ever done yeah. and it was done by these British soldiers that yeah. opened fire. On pe- and people kind of forget that that's what we're talking about. Mm. Um, people... Uh, you know and love and are at birthday parties and you know, in the mm. extended family, they are killed and th- that's the kind of tensions. It's not yeah. about um, uh, do you say the rosary yeah, or no. um, uh, what's, what do you think happens in communion? Yeah. Like, what, no, yeah, <laughs> what's your yeah, take on yeah, transubstantiation? Yeah, no, yeah, no, it did run deep. And, and in some ways to really understand the Irish conflict, you, you kind of have to live there and breathe it and be part of it. Um, at the same time, there's nothing new under the sun, you know, like I was struck in 95 when I spent a year in South Africa by similarities in post-apartheid South Africa with Northern Ireland. And we were in the middle of two ceasefires. The ceasefire had just been broken, Um, you know, and so it is complex. I would not discount, though, the religious side to it and the Mm. role that 
toxic religion played in our conflict. So yeah. the, the documentary I've made comes from a quote by the former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs. Yeah. So in his book, The Dignity of Difference, which my dad gave me just before he died, really? shortly before oh, he died, wow. probably a year before. And, um, and then when he died, I, I looked at his copy and he had, um, he had written down quotes. My dad was very meticulous enough mm. to write down the quote. And there was this one quote in it, which I obviously read in the book, where Jonathan Sachs says, you know, after the um, Enlightenment, it, you know, people thought religion was mute, marginal, and mild, but it wasn't. You know, yeah. he's, and then he says this: he says, "Religion is like fire, and like fire, it warms, but it also burns." And we are mm. the guardians of the flame. And um, that's then become the, the title of the documentary we've made about Northern Ireland. We hope it will be a series looking at other places of conflict. It's the title of the podcast. So, by by using that phrase, where we are saying. The conflict that we had in our country was about a lot of things. It was about um, socioeconomic status and lack of education, and it was about class and culture. And um, But it, there was a religious dimension. For Protestants, there was a belief among the more, more extreme side, the Ian Paisley side, that God had given them this land. This was their promised land, you know. And the, and that's why for many Protestants they put up the Israeli flag because they yeah. identify hugely with this narrative of God, you know, picking a people and saying, I like them. I want mm. them to have the land, you know. For our bad news, we're the Canaanites. <laughs> that's the, that's <laughs> yeah. you, are, you are the uncircumcised Philistines, <laughs> you know. Um, so, you know, and, and so, you know, whereas when my parents came here, one of their core beliefs was, was from Scripture, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, yeah. you know. And so, you know, you walk through a neighborhood and it says, you know, UFFC company, you know, UVF IRA, whatever it is, yeah. you know, um, the, the people have been fighting over land in this country for centuries, you know, mm. and there is something profound about kind of, uh, saying the earth is the Lord's, you know, um, and and a, a understanding land is being beyond just God picking and choosing His favorites, yeah. um, and God loving all people, um, yeah. wanting us to live without walls, you know. Yeah, and so some of the things that we were discussing um, with this international mob I was talking with earlier today was that election is about vocation, mm. that we're only ever blessed to be mm. a blessing, oh, and. Yeah. Um, how quickly we lose that and election becomes mm. this perverse, some mm. are more special mm. than others. And mm. that's always toxic. That's, yeah. But um, Richard Raw talks about we do all need this sense of that we are special, mm. we are chosen. Mm. De- developmentally, um, if that's not part of um, mm. your experience as a child, you, mm. you're actually lacking. But when that becomes something that is over and against mm. instead of for and with yeah others mm. it becomes incredibly toxic johnny mm. I, I would love you to actually open up scripture mm. and talk about how um this passion to be guardians of the flame and help um both sides all sides of um this conflict actually uh you know steward um that fire in ways that that do warm instead of um Harm and, and burn. Um, what what passage would you like to open up for us? Okay, well, if uh, let's see if my phone is still. I'm on one percent, so if it runs out, I'll grab your Bible. Okay, um, <laughs> uh, but there's an extended passage, really, in Ephesians one and two that I'll I'll kind of um, uh, read. And uh, and I guess in in reading it, if we can invite people into these streets and mm-hmm. into the reality of um, uh, not far from here, a military 
base being mm. blown up and mm. um, uh, the people who cheered and the chief people mm. who mourned and the people who had the... Um, that this isn't just an ancient text talking about conflict between people who are elect, um, that of the Jewish people, and Gentiles being opened up, but the conflicts we find ourselves in, and the complexity of like maybe even if we do look alike. So our friends like Rene August, um, mm. who jokes that, um, yeah, but the, the coloured and black people here, <laughs> they look just like mm. <laughs> um, the, the others. And they're some of the complexities of... But um, I, I'd like to invite people to imagine themselves on these streets or the conflicts that they know, um, whether it be in Syria or whether it be in South Africa yeah. or whether it be um, uh, here in Northern Ireland or whatever, and hear these words. Mm. Yeah. So Ephesians 1, uh, start at verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head of everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As for you, you were dead in your sins and transgressions in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. For because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God, through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So, wow. 
Um, well, I mean, hmm. for, for those who have followed us this far into the podcast but don't have much familiarity with, like, um, the Holy Scriptures for Christians, I mean, there's talk here of circumcision. <laughs> like, what is that? There's um, these metaphor of um, the, the powers and mm. this ancient um, political language realms. of, like, yeah. heavenly realms and at the right hand. And, I mean, there's... There's a whole heap coming on, like going on here, Johnny. And some people would go, <laughs> "I just lost about half your audience." <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this this yeah. is a great yeah. thing, right? And this is and while you were, I was flipping between the way that different Christianities mm. on this land would also read this passage, mm. the different theologies and mm. what things would be emphasized mm. and heard, mm. um, what things would get amens, and what things were met with stone. Yeah. Silence yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for for the um, theology nerds amongst us. Um, some could argue that um, the, the front of chapter two is kind of the old perspective on Paul, while yeah. um, the the back end of um, the passage you read is kind of like the, the new, new perspective, perspective yeah. and yet they sit side by side. Um, what has any of this mm. got to do? How do we read this in such ways that turn mm. our world upside mm. down? Yeah, well, I think. See, I think um, you were asking how my my early days of reading the Bible and understanding it. It was in a simplistic way, you know, mm. of uh, God's with David and helps him kill Goliath, and mm. God's with Samuel and speaks to him at night, you know, and uh, and then you know, my dad reading me little extracts from the Bible before I go to school, you know, God is never present time and help in time of trouble. A very, very good, beautiful kind of truths that probably gave me a sense of self-esteem as, mm. as a young kid. But understanding this passage, I think, which I did probably in 15 years ago in a deeper way, did very much transform my understanding um, of a God that's just a God that's on my side, a domesticated God, a mm. God that gives me a ticket to heaven. And rather seeing a God that, as it says at the end of chapter 1, uh, which... Um, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Can yeah. we imagine a God who fills the whole earth that somehow, uh, according to Colossians 1, it, on the cross was reconciling all things to himself, mm. you know? And no long, he wasn't just reconciling the Christian subculture, <laughs> you know? He was reconciling all things yeah. to himself, you yeah, know? Yeah. And, um, and, on the, and, the, and I suppose probably 20 years ago when I really started to kind of hear this verse and hear these, this passage and it was dealing with the conflict that we exist, lived here and then also that I saw in other places. So so here, um, not only was the narrow water bomb the biggest kind of bombing uh, where military personnel were killed, yeah. uh, it's about two miles from here, mm -hmm. but also even in like probably 400 meters up the road was two policemen were shot um, during the troubles and uh, shot in the head as they were sitting in the car outside the post office. And um, we had that incredible experience when I was preaching up at um, yeah. uh, Emmanuel at Church Emmanuel. in Lurgan, yeah. And um, talk about what happened there and yeah. finding out more about that incident which has scarred this little town. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a sleepy little village, but people here have very strong opinions, you know. Mm. And during the Troubles, it was hard to be neutral, you know, and places like this would have become... 
uh, you know, it's a 95% Catholic area. It's a beautiful place. But mm. people would have felt very strongly the narrative that they had been living under a yoke of British oppression for so long. And mm. while the IRA were not broadly supported, there would have been a growing... Uh, there was many people that would have understood their cause as being somehow a, a noble cause. And mm. it's difficult to to rewrite history. And, and to, uh, to you can't do revisionist history. You can't... Yeah. Kind of, when we look at it now, it's different from what it felt like back then. But back then, there were policemen sat in a car and they they shot in the head. And the daughter of one of the men that was shot came up after you spoke and Lurgan came up to me and said, um, you're from Ross Trevor? And I said, yes. And she goes, I have always hated Ross Trevor. And I'm mm. like, whoa, what's, why do you hate Ross Trevor? It's beautiful. And she goes... My father was in the police and he was shot dead in Ross Trevor. I've always hated, whenever I've heard that name, it's made my blood run cold. And she then went on to go, recently I went there for the first time and, and God began to speak to me. And, um, and, you know, and that lady began to speak about a, a God that, had the, that would even want her to be someone who could reach beyond her own pain. Yeah to a greater place of instead of being victimized and the, and the victim of oppression to a victim of violence, to rise above that and actually speak out words of forgiveness. Um, wow. And that's when, uh, and that was very powerful to meet her. I, yeah. I'd heard about these two policemen that were shot, you know. So, so in this and passage... And some of the complexities is that at least one of them was Catholic, right? I think actually that's true, yeah. yeah. I think one was, you know, and... There's all kinds of stories like that in this country, and um, and you know, and the other side could tell stories of how yes. they were victimized. In my film, I tell the story of Eugene Reevy, whose three brothers were shot dead by um, uh, a collusion of Protestant paramilitaries and British government forces. You yeah. know, the Glenann gang. Uh, his brothers, three of his brothers, were sitting watching Celebrity Squares on the TV alone in their house. Gunmen came in and shot them in cold blood. One of them uh, was shot in the heart, fell face down, and then the gunman put about another forty bullets in his back. You know, and Eugene in the in the film uh, says, you know, if you're going to shoot a dog, you'd only shoot him once. You know, and uh, you know, and so there was there was injustices and horrendous uh, violence committed on all sides uh, during the conflict. It reaches so deep into a community, and it so scars you. Like I'm Mark, like the yeah. part of part of my experience yeah. of coming here for the first yeah. time was being taken to a pub, yeah. and while we're eating in the pub, yeah. um, family telling me that this is where your dad's granddad yeah. yeah. was blown up yeah. in this pub, and yeah. it's like, oh my, oh my good, and so yeah. many people have those connections, mm. like um, it it marks people in such a way that you can understand why those so-called peace walls. People don't want to bring them down. No, no, they don't. And they don't even want the invisible walls that separate middle class and working class to come down either. They're happy huh. for people to stay in their station, you know, to, yeah. to know their place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, where you're from is interesting. The Ardoin is a, is a, um, it's a little Republican area, at kind of North Belfast, right next to the, the Greater Shankill area, which is where I live, which is a very Protestant area. And again, one of the, one of the most well-known incidences during the Troubles uh, in the Shankill was the Shankill Road bombing in 1993 when uh, literally an IRA man came in with a bomb into a fish shop mm. and there were um, you know, a dozen people in there and uh, 10 of them were killed. 
as the bomb prematurely went off, the bomber went off, was killed himself. But there is people waiting to buy fish and boom, they're blowing up. And in, our, in the documentary, again, that I filmed, we interview Alan McBride, whose mm. wife, Sharon, was in that. Her father ran the sh- fish shop and Sharon was in the queue um, waiting. And Alan says the two bombers were two 19-year-old guys from the Ardoin, Yeah, you know, and he goes, what do you know when you're 19? But yeah. somehow those two guys at 19 were ready to take a bomb into a fish shop and blow it up, you know. Yeah. Now, you know, there's a whole other story that it didn't mean to go off that early. They thought there were loyalist commanders upstairs, but whatever happened, it was 19-year-olds and they were from where your grandfather was from, the Ardoin, mm. you know. Um, so, you know, you can come to Ireland and you can do a little nice little you know, sightseeing trip around the country and see one of those the, leprechaun sure, buses. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Oh, you can. You can drink Guinness and you can, you know, <laughs> you can go to Dublin. You can do all the stuff, you know. Um, but underneath the veneer of these beautiful green fields is is, is tragedy, you know. Mm. Um, and so, and it's a tragedy of two peoples, um, two tribes, if you like. And mm. uh, Ephesians two addresses that. Um, it, yeah. it addresses the fact that uh, at the beginning of Ephesians 2, it says that, that God has seated us with Christ in heavenly realms far above the principalities and powers and dominions. And see, for me, the way I read that is when we, uh, for instance, the area where I used to work in the Shankill, the Shankill would have been filled 100 years ago with shipbuilders. They mm-hmm. would have all worked in Harland and Wolf shipyards, and they would have been making the Titanic. You know, yeah, that's, that's where right. the Titanic was built, you know, in the, in the shipyards. And, and, yep. uh, and um, but of course, over the last hundred years, the jobs have gone away. Uh, powerful men who owned the business took it away to make more money elsewhere. They, they were, they sinned, you know, they, they sinned against their own workers because they wanted to enrich yep. themselves. And that sin meant that people lost their jobs and they go home and they then commit sins. They decide to go and drink their problems away that mm. night and come home and then they beat up their wife. And, mm. and, and, but they never get their job back. And then they have ki- their kids grow up. And their kids, by that point, there's no work for their kids. And mm. so there's, a, there's another generation of unemployed people with no hope, with their only role models being an alcoholic dad, you know. Mm. Uh, and then the third generation comes along. And by the time when we were working there in the early 2000s, you've had 60 years of, of uh, ingrained systemic poverty in an yeah. area and that have been caused by a ripple effect of sins, if you like, you yeah. know, from, from the corporate sins of uh, uh, people enriching themselves to the knock-on domino effect of the little guy. And to draw yeah. parallels with places that people might be more familiar with. Mm. I think of like Martin Luther King at the end Mm. of the Selma campaign Mm. talking about one of the ways that the rich landowners in the South Mm. kept poor white people Mm. disempowered was by telling them at least you're not Mm. and using the most horrific terms Mm. to talk about black people Mm. and their only place of dignity to protect them against the reality of being stripped of everything is at least they're not a Mm. fill in the blank. Mm. But here the blank is Mm. a Mick. Mm. Here the blank is Mm. a Catholic. Mm. And part of the tension actually Mm. being the the poverty, which um, now we've got a scapegoat to go, at least we're better than them. And um, uh, at least we've got more options than them. 
and uh, the hatred on the other side mm. for, um, well, you did have jobs. Mm. Where were our jobs when you got the jobs? Mm. Mm. Like whether, and for us to actually mm. start to understand how these um, mm. generational mm. and what would it be to be above mm. those principles which have been placed mm. in the heart or to use language of principalities mm. which have been governing the hearts of these mm. different communities. Mm. What is it for us to actually sit above these powers mm. which narrate our lives and mm. teach us who and how to hate mm. regardless of the history or the rationale behind it mm. um, and suddenly talk of principalities and powers instead of it being, I don't know, a, a fantasyful kind of um, uh, who was the um, uh, demons on your shoulder kind of Frank Peretti oh, kind yeah, of yeah, right yeah, like yeah. Um, suddenly we're talking yeah. about actually that which animates mm. communities, societies, families, um, uh, the, the imaginations and the, th- the patterns we get trapped in which keep us from being human. Mm. Yeah, and, it, and it, can, it can feel so tangible, those principalities. You know, yeah. I mean, you would often get tourist buses go up the Shankill and they would be like people with no faith whatsoever would go, it feels a bit different here. Because yeah. you know what? People didn't have imagination because their imagination had been squashed by yes. years of abuse, numbed by alcohol, drugs, whatever, numbed by hatred of the other. So people didn't plant trees. They, they, on the park, the kids' park, there were three gable ends of three blocks of houses in the Shankill where we used to work, and there were three paramilitaries painted onto each one. You know, mm. and So kids would play literally under the gaze of masked men with guns, you yeah. know, uh, so the scapegoat became the way to get out of this problem for many people. It was yeah. like we feel anxious, we feel angry, we feel depressed. There's got to be someone to blame for this. And, of yes. course, it became convenient for both sides to blame the other team, you know. Mm. Um, and it became then very very uh, kind of dynamite when a preacher, when they go to church and a preacher kind of speaks about the Catholics and what they believe mm. or a Catholic priest talks about what Protestants believe. And suddenly mm. you're getting this kind of not only is uh, God on my side, but he's definitely on their side. You know, like a friend of mine, David Kidd, says when the God, um, uh, when, um, when your enemy becomes God's enemy, you know you're worshiping an idol. Um, you wow. Know, <laughs> you know, and That's an amazing uh, quote. Uh, you know, who is it? He says... Um, when God hates all the same people that you do, you know, and uh, and so you you kind of kind of create God in your own image, you know. You've you've, yeah. you've got this little thing, and and, and and then you have religious rituals that don't happen mm. in a sanctuary mm. and don't happen in mass, mm. but they happen mid July, mm. and it happens with like and there there are certain songs and and religion is mixed into it, mm-hmm. but it's not explicitly. And on mm. the other side, like. Um, uh, like and those songs mm. c- carry like um, my oh, grandmother's yeah. wake and yeah. like some of the songs that have been sung on the other side of the world and it's like why are we talking about going <laughs> off to join the IRA like what's, <laughs> You're in Australia. what's, what's <laughs> yeah. going on like yeah, yeah. Um, uh, those things run deep yeah yeah no they do and and that mix of 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 religion and nationality is a toxic mix. So one of the the, the catch for the, the slogan of the Ulster Volunteer Force, which was one of the 
Protestant paramilitary groups is for God and Ulster. So, mm. you know, under that slogan, they would go and shoot taxi drivers in the back of the head because they were Catholic, you know, because yeah. for God and Ulster, you know. And so one of the, I think, really progressive, positive contributions at the end, towards the end of the Troubles was when a group called Econi, the Evangelical Contribution on Northern Ireland, wrote a little document called For God and God Alone. And see, what they were saying is you cannot wow. put God with anything else. You know, yeah. As the New Zealand writer Mike Riddell says, there's no dual citizenship in heaven. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so this idea that somehow, f- certainly for followers of Jesus, that our citizenship comes from identity, uh, with him, mm. uh, our citizenship comes from him, not from, and that's what it means to be seated with Christ in heavenly realms, far above the principalities that's of right. Britishness or Irishness yeah. or rebel songs or Orange Lodge songs or yeah. or whatever or Hutu or Tutsi or uh, Afrikaans, English, Zulu, Gaza. Mm. You know, mm. you know. Somehow, I think a redemptive place in humanity is when we find ourselves. Uh, live transcending um, uh, symbols that actually can become very divisive. That's yeah. why when I go to an American church and I see a cross and a stars and stripes next to it, side by side, yeah. you know, it's, God and you know, it's pretty scary. I went to a church in America. I won't <laughs> tell you where, but I saw this guy walk up with a T-shirt and it had um, on the front it said two things every child should learn how to use. And uh, on the back, it was a, a Bible and a gun, you know. And, uh, you know, you're kind of like, man, this is mental, you know. Yeah. You've literally stuck God next to your, you know, your love of your little constitution. Yeah. <laughs> and your, and your but our different cultures flag. have different things that we stick with. Yeah. And, I mean, this is a fascinating thing because so many people uh, with a – split universe the spiritual is elsewhere mm. even though there's almost um geographical upness to the poetry of these dynamics that are being mm. named um paul is writing maybe from prison mm. in terms of like um uh, for those who are part of the school mm. that think this is um paul's writing the book of ephesians but those mm. that think it's from the school of paul um it still like the social position of the church mm is not one where they're doing great. Mm. And what's been articulated here mm. is not one day you will go to heaven. Mm. It's that right now mm. who we are mm. sits above all this stuff mm. which actually mm. tears us apart. Mm. And what I also find fascinating is that it's not the dissolving of these identities but the redemption of them. Mm. Like mm. Um, yeah. I-, I was so moved by our friend Alan who you introduced me to. He's a wonderful pastor here and very involved in leading the 24 7 prayer yeah, movement yeah. here and like he's he's an amazing guy and um our family alan emerson yeah uh, alan emerson uh, our families have um been formed by different sides mm. of the conflict mm. in this land mm. and alan and his um his embrace of me has just been so like i'm getting emotional talking about mm. it, but just moving mm. and it's simple things like um, me showing a photo of where my dad played as a kid mm. under these murals about um, mm. uh, the imprisonment of mm. hunger strikers and all this. They're the murals that line the streets where my dad played as a child outside his granny's place. Mm. And um, Alan not only puts up with it, 
but he actually likes it and comments on it on Instagram, which, I mean, it's hard to understand, but that's such an act mm. of generosity mm. um, uh, to go, I know mm. this is important, but this no longer names us because mm. we are brothers in Christ mm. and we are working for the, the peace and the mm. healing um, mm. of this nation and others. Mm. It's, I mean, mm. I think that your work mm. here, Mm. Alan's generosity to me mm. in that, that mm. is an amazing example mm. of um, sitting above yeah. those things. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And I think, you know, we, we realize that, um, you know, Ephesians 2, Jesus is saying that on the cross that he's doing away with this dividing wall of hostility. And like I was looking up, um, uh, you know, in the in the. Jewish temple, you know, that dividing wall of hostility was a literal small wall that separated mm. the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews, you know, that Gentiles couldn't go. In fact, there was, a, there was an inscription that I was reading out before this. And in Greek, the translation from Greek says, whoever is captured will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. So it's written to Gentiles. Who, in case you're thinking of walking over this wall, know that if you do, you will be only hold yourself to blame for your subsequent death. Yeah. You know? Basically don't step over this wall. This dividing wall of hostility is here, is to keep us apart. And so what Paul is writing to, he's writing to a church who are trying to figure out how do you be Jew and Gentile? You know, how do we do how do we deal with different labels, different symbols, different things that keep us mm. that get, make us so fundamentally different it feels. Um, how do we deal with it? Do, do the Jews need to become Gentiles? Do the Gentiles need to all go and get circumcised? You know, how do we do it? And in it, into that environment, he's saying, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, mm. who's destroyed the dividing wall of hostility that kept us apart. And see, for me, I find it very difficult to, impo- in fact, I find it impossible now to read that passage without thinking of our own context here, of yeah. two groups of people that have been separated by literal walls. I yeah. I find it very difficult not to think of my friend Elias, who lives in, in Palestine, in Bethlehem, yes. yeah. who lives at opposite Rachel's tomb, which is the biggest Israeli checkpoint as you come into Bethlehem. And um, and for Elias, when this separation wall was built in around Bethlehem, um, it meant he can't get into Jerusalem to visit his sister. Um, mm. th- these are literal walls. And, you know, I remember one of Elias's questions was about forgiveness. Johnny, I can forgive. I understand how I can forgive someone who hurt me 20 years ago. How do I forgive someone who's still hurting me, you know, yeah. who's hurting yeah. me every day, you know, who every day I can't go to visit my sister and her kids because of this wall? Um, and, you know, Elias was, well, was our first Palestinian we brought to Northern Ireland, Elias and Salim, and uh, great two great guys. And it was a, a very special year, 2005. They came to live in the Shankill. Of course, the Shankill had Israeli flags up and down it. I remember taking them. <laughs> I remember taking them to Clonard Monastery on the Falls Road, where they have Palestinian flags, and they felt much better there. Yeah. But then they started to talk to these young Irish Catholics about forgiveness, and they, these guys, were blown away by a Palestinian telling us about forgiveness I have it's amazing you know and then wow. we we ended up going with them to Rwanda and Burundi and I think for both Elias and Salim it was very profound to go to parts of the world where they saw a conflict that actually and you hate to kind of compare conflicts but in terms of literal numbers of people that's right the million killed in Rwanda in 94 the creeping genocide in Burundi that resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths 
it, it was deeply moving to them. And to hear them, I remember doing a, an event where Salim spoke about forgiveness in Gitega, the second biggest city in Burundi. And he asked people at the end, you know, who wants to reconcile, you know? And he told his own story of, of living on one side of a wall, of feeling oppressed, you know? Um, and, and, and yet here he was in Burundi saying, you know, he had an authority to do the same thing, to, mm. to challenge them to live beyond walls, you know, to say that the, the walls of separation don't reach to heaven, you know, and that somehow we kind of have to live in, in that heavenly place, you know, where the walls don't reach us, yeah. regardless of our faith, you know, yeah. regardless of where we are, you know, that you know, Ephesians 1 says that this world is... F- Full of God, yeah. <laughs> you know. God is not in the sub Christian subculture, you know. He's <laughs> He's everywhere. He's in everything, and we're kind of called to kind of bring this kind of heaven and earth together, you know. Um, I, I'm aware as you talk about that in reading, some people might still be stuck on the word wrath, mm. and that for for some. Um, like if we become like what we worship mm-hmm. and mm. um, uh, wrath is um, – and I wondered if, it, if it's worth us just for a moment um, since you asked if I would do mm. a little bit, Johnny, yeah, yeah, in this as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Th- this is actually going to be both an inverse and a Guardians of the Flame, right? That's, That's right. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's the first My time we're tagged. My is a lot better actually. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, J- Johnny, no, really the really virtue is of humility <laughs> is is Johnny still needs to work on, but he, it's right. Like um, Guardians of Flame is is brilliant, yeah, and yeah, I tell everybody yeah. listening. No, to I it. haven't had Walter um, Brueggemann. No, I'm just. Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but you have had Renee August. I have, yeah, uh, and Jared McKenna. That is very good. Yeah. <laughs> you can't uh, yeah. can't get it right every time. Yeah. Um, well, I, I thought, like, in terms of Psalm 7, it might mm. just be point, worth pointing out what um, David Cohen, who was um, my Hebrew Bible Old Testament um, professor when I first studied and is a friend, um, he pointed out how um, how Jewish people and, and his family are, are Jewish, how, how Jewish people th- um, think about wrath. And um, often we talk about, um, the God of the Old Testament versus the God in the New, in ways that are almost like anti-Semitic, honestly. Yeah. That um, yeah. kind of, and yet our Jewish um, friends and neighbours they don't read uh, what we call the Old Testament in ways that um, God looks anything like um, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Um, so, is it worth just kind of um, jumping into? Mm, go for um, it. So, this is Psalm. 7 verse 11 God is a righteous God a God who expresses his wrath every day Mm. well there you have it God's Mm. out to get us Mm. and so in terms of the conflict maybe we're going to be agents Mm. of God's wrath Mm. if he does not relent he will sharpen his sword and he will bend the string of his bow he will prepare his deadly weapons and make ready his flaming arrows so God's got an arsenal and God's Mm. ready to Mm. and yet it goes on he who is pregnant with evil and conceives trouble gives birth to disillusionment. And it's like, oh, what? Why are we now talking about individuals give birth to disillusionment? Mm. He who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit it has made. Mm. I'm like, what? Hang on. Are we talking about God's going to get you? God's going to 
Um, the trouble he has caused recoils on himself. His violence comes down on his own head. Mm. And even the mention of, of wrath there, mm. that what it is to not sit above mm. these powers and principalities mm. that try and name us as mm. something less than human, mm. less than children of God, mm. that um, uh, is Lorenz um, talks about that uh, if you throw rocks in the air, uh, don't blame God if stones uh, fall from the sky. Mm, mm. And suddenly what we throw into this text, a God that doesn't look like mm. what we see in Jesus, mm. is actually a warning of the consequences of if we are subject to stories that aren't expansive, that don't tear down walls, that do build up barriers and vote for walls, mm. that we will face the the rocks we throw in the air and the the trenches we dig, we will fall into, mm. um, and the, the trenches which, which separate us mm. and separate our hearts, mm. um, they, they take a lot of time to actually mm. fill in mm. and replant and see mm. something mm. grow there. Um, so, Johnny, how does this connect for me, this talk of um, whether it's a metaphor here of being above or where it's an interior metaphor of coming from somewhere else within us mm. um, or uh, whether it's talk here of wrath being um, the, the consequences of our own addiction to violence and sectarianism, how does that fit with we are saved by grace through mm. faith, mm. not by works so no one can mm. but boast? And we are God's poem, or we are God's workmanship, mm. um, w- with whom He has predestined good works for us to do. Mm. If if Jesus brings down the dividing wall, well, what's this work? What's this vocation that we, as poems of God's peace, mm. what's this work that we have to do, and how does it connect to how you live your life here and the calling of this place here? Mm. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think. Um a key thing is is understanding that um, you know our our conflict here, um, you know, many ways disillusioned many people. Um, so they couldn't it kind of you know in the same way the sin um, doesn't change God's mind about us, it changes our mind about God. It, it mm. blurs our picture of God. Uh, our conflict here blurred our picture of. Who God was that you could either see God as a indifferent deity far removed from our petty conflict, but who's nevertheless whose name was causing us to kill each other, mm. or you see God as a hyper-involved deity, literally picking and choosing who's going to get blown up today, or you see a God who identifies with us and suffers with us, and. Um, and we become wounded by the the shards of grace, you know, um, wow. and and we begin to see the world through grace healed eyes, and um, um, you know that, uh, and and so you know I sometimes use the word you know and peace is a word found throughout the scripture, you know, um, from Isaiah nine, for unto us a child is born, unto a son is given, of his government and of his peace there will be no end, you know. Yeah. Peace being obviously the Hebrew word shalom, and I sometimes use the, you know, to try to help, you know, Western audiences understand yeah, yeah. the difference between the English phrase peace and the Hebrew understanding of shalom. You know, I say 
if my car is at peace, it's sitting out in the driveway out there, the engine is turned off, it's not bothering anyone, it's quietly just sitting there rusting away next to the <laughs> Carlingford Lock salt water, you know? Um, but if my car is at Shalom and the car is turned on, I'm driving out the door, the driveway, the, the indicator works, the lights all work, the brake lights work, I go first gear, second gear, third gear, fourth gear. Everything works the way it's meant to work. Mm. Um, all the different parts of this car are working well, you know. And, uh, you know, if, our, if we view our job as peacemakers simply to kind of somehow stop a violent, you know, violent actions, we're, we're, our, our vocation is impoverished because we're not just a – I mean, that's a f- good start. Stop people killing each other is a good that's start, right. you know. <laughs> it's a really good start, you know, and some people are good at that, you know. But ultimately, we then have to um, – we have to plant flowers, you know. Um, well, you know, we've got like Elizabeth Ellen, and her incredible yeah. ministry that we visited yesterday. Yeah, yeah. In fact, is she she's still out there, out there watering, watering the, her little seedlings? Yeah. So she's got a vision to to plant flowers here and 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 to grow beautiful things, you know. And as you spoke, Jared yesterday spoke to our our staff here in this community and talked about the glory of the Lord. You know, and the, the word glory meaning could be understood as meaning beauty, you know, mm. and beauty, as Dostoevsky says, beauty will save the world, you know. Um, um, we, we're not just to stop people shooting each other, we're meant to plant flowers, we're meant to start yeah. to make the world beautiful, that to, you know, and in the Old Testament, to, to, cult, to subdue the earth, you know, Adam was told, you know, you're in charge, go and subdue the earth, and we read that through the lens of our Western consumeristic right. individualistic Cartesian. lens i'm yep. going to go out and consume i'm subdue the earth yeah but if we understand subduing the earth is actually to make it fruitful to yes. plant to plant flowers to, to plant steward. orange trees you know to steward to, to bring to life that then to subdue means to go out to an empty piece of land and to plant things that are going to grow yeah. you know and to care to nurture and so when we look at this land i understand my vocation being shaped by that word shalom, that I'm to live, that the walls of separation don't reach to heaven, that when I meet anyone, whether they are a Protestant or a Catholic or a Christian or a non-Christian or a black person, a white person, man or woman, we are to live without walls in that sense. Mm. To to follow Jesus is to live in a way that there are no boundaries that stop us. You know, the, as Mother Teresa says and Father Greg Boyle who works Homeland, Home, homeboy homeboy industries. industries yeah. You know, he says he quotes Mother Teresa. We belong to each other. You know, so if a if an Irish, if a sorry, if a Jesuit priest, a white, you know, middle class educated Jesuit priest can look in the eyes of a uh, incarcerated Hispanic gang member who's killed people and say we belong to each other, you know, that is what it's about. You yeah. know, it's about. Um, it's about my friend Beryl, who's in the film, whose husband was shot by the IRA and. Uh, minutes afterwards felt God speaking and saying, what will you do? And she was like, Why? what do you mean? Her husband is literally mm-hmm. dying on her front front driveway. Uh, her three-year-old daughter is, is crying, uh. you know, what do I, what do you do, Beryl? And she didn't know what to do, didn't know what to say. So all she could think of was to say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, mm-hmm. hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. She came to the bit where it says, forgive us, um, our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And she stopped and she said, God, are you asking me to forgive the people who literally minutes ago, mm. you know, she's probably still waiting for the police to come and the mm. ambulances, 
are you asking me to forgive these men? And she felt God saying yes. And she said, okay, God, I, I will do that, but I need you to help me because I can't do it on my own. And then she proceeds to say, and, and God has been faithful. And yeah. Beryl is mercy all over, you know. Yeah, God has been faithful. And, and uh, you know, and she, and she so she then began to parent her daughter in a way that was shaped by that cruciform love of enemy. Yeah. So she tells a story in the f- film of, you know, we, maybe a week afterwards she was, putting her, her daughter Gail into, into bed. This and, is a story I shared on the BBC because it impacted uh, me so deeply. Like, yeah. I've talked about it ever since. Oh, uh, yeah. I've seen it, Johnny. Like, yeah. it, I find it hard to get through the story. Yeah. Like, it's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. no, it's amazing. I mean, she's saying, she's praying with her daughter and then Gail interrupts her prayer and says, um, God, did you know that bad men came to kill my daddy? Would you make them into good men? <laughs> and, you know, to be able to, you know, you realize that she was being brought up that way. Yeah. You know, Beryl, whose husband has been killed, has been shaped by this cruciform love of God, a love a God that would rather die for his enemies and kill his enemies. Mm. She's been shaped by that. She's raising her daughter like that. And so her daughter has been brought into this inverse world where we actually love people who do bad mm. things to us because... We all need the grace of God somehow, mm. you know, and um, and and so, um, y- you know, a little child is growing up wanting bad men to become good, you know, mm. and uh, she's still like that to this day, you know, and 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 that's the world, that's the work we have to do in the world, you know, mm. that's what it means when we don't live as separated by dividing walls of hostility, yeah. but we become one new humanity. Yeah, we're seated with Christ in heavenly realms, far above the stuff of our past, the, yes. the stuff of generations past. Yes. I don't look at you through the lens of you're an Ardoin kid, and I'm a I'm a Protestant landowner. You know, yeah. you weren't your people weren't allowed to own land in this yes. country. I was. You yeah. know, my people were. You know, we don't look at each other through that lens. We, the dividing walls do not reach to heaven. That was a, a phrase on a little card that Father Jerry Reynolds. A redemptress priest from Clonard Monastery, which really became the cradle of the peace talks. Mm. Um, he would give out this little this little card to everyone that would come in. Uh, Jerry Reynolds and Alec Reed really ushered in our peace process. And on this card was this, this little drawing, and it said the, it was a, a little city with a, a wall, and above it was a cross, and it said, "The dividing walls do not reach to heaven." And on the back was a prayer of Father Paul Couturier, who was one of the early kind of. Um, the ecumenical leaders in the early 20th century. And one of the lines in that says, um, forgive us for the infidelity of our disunity. Mm. And, um, you know, I love to read that prayer all the time, not just in a way of saying disunity with my other subculture Christian brothers, Mm -hmm. but forgive me for erecting dividing walls all over the place. That's right. For living in disunity with people who are not like me, you know, mm. um, forgive me for, for, you know, creating separation instead of understanding oneness that we belong to each other. Yeah. Um, Which is the incredible place that the end of the passage that you read mm-hmm. goes to and the, the complexity of the imagery is lost on us. As you mentioned, that this is about the Jewish temple and the place of God's presence, but who's allowed in and who's allowed out? 
like who, mm. who has to mm. be kept out. Mm. And it's combined um, uh, with this language of the oikos, that mm. is the household. So it's like what it is to be a family, the oikos, the household, and what it is to be a temple. And it's not talking about a building. And there's this complex like play in the language, like um, uh, verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. They're not allowed in mm. on God's presence. Mm. They don't get in. Like they're not, um, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. That's the first use of like a term related to oikos um, built on the foundation. There's another term that's related to the, the household, the, the oikos. All of it is about family. Who are your people? Who are you loyal to? And the only we're not given a new identity in Christ that can be used against another group. Mm. The only thing that holds us mm. together is not a, us against mm. them, mm. but us for them. Um, built on the foundation of the apostles, which is a lovely little memory of you know all those who got it wrong previously and yet were confronted mm. on the other side of crucifixion with forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that raises the dead, and the prophets, and with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, mm. holding everything together. In him the whole building, again, family, oikos, the term is related, joining together and raising to become a holy mm. temple mm. in the Lord. Mm. And what's implied there in verse 22, mm. and in him you too are built together to become a dwelling mm. in which God lives by his spirit. Mm. The, the Shekinah glory of mm. God, God's mm. dream that um, the earth is the Lord's and everything mm. in it, as you were quoting mm. earlier, mm. that we get to be the place mm. where God's presence, that where there are no more foreigners, there are no more strangers, there's no more outsiders or others, the, the only thing there is is the presence that we all get in on and this is our new family this is now our new um i mean it, it's incredible and the words plays are kind of missed on us and the um the the ancient kind of projection of spiritual realities um don't fit with our worldview but if we're able to listen in such ways that we realize the author is talking about real realities that we face today mm. that can be healed and there can be communities where um, we are one, mm. um, even if we're not the same. Like we, yeah. we, we are one. We do belong to each other. The one anotherness of what it is to love one another um, is that that difference is no longer a curse. We can learn one another's songs, mm. and even these songs can be used to. Uh, and that's why I appreciate your work and witness so much, Johnny. This place is incredible. And what you and Jen foster and um, uh, facilitate here and the leaders that you're producing, who are now in Lebanon and now in South Africa and the impact found in Wollongong and, like, all these places around the world, it's, mm. it's incredibly special and a real privilege for me to call you my friend. Mm. And I'm so thankful for both your documentary mm. and your podcast, even if it's better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and those kind of resources being out there and these kind of stories and voices being heard because we have to tell these stories. Yeah. These these texts need to be seen through eyes such as yours that they're no longer just seen as like some spiritual truth for getting yeah. us out of here. Yeah. Um, but yeah. actually how do we move through all this that we do see Shalom and it does run how God dreams that it would on love. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, it's Jared. I, I've 
appreciated your work from afar for a long time and it's been so cool to get to know you this year mm. and have you over here and you're always welcome man this is this is lovely and yeah i mean i think what you're describing that at the end it was beautiful about the the household the family you know you know when i go to palestine people are obsessed with the old stones 2000 yeah. year old stones and what about the living stones what about the people yeah. affected by bad theology what about <laughs> affected the people that are there what about you know and but somehow we need to understand we belong to each other and uh that's right. And, and the people uh, who have been there since Pentecost. Yeah. Who yeah. can trace <laughs> yeah. how long your family's yeah, been Christian? Yeah. Uh, since okay, the start. Do you remember years. <laughs> Acts 2? Yeah, That's yeah. how long we've been here. Yeah. And those living stones yeah. are often missed by people wanting to take selfies next to ancient yeah. stones. And totally. we do that conflict no favours by acting like those people are invisible. And also, if you read Ephesians 2 as a historical document merely about Jews and Gentiles, but don't understand how it can be read in the in the twenty first century in the midst of countries where there's centuries of of uh, of, of conflict and yeah. division and walls that have been built either physically or subconsciously in the hearts of people for yeah. generations, and uh, that is real. Ephesians two is relevant today. Yeah, yeah. He is himself as our peace made the two one destroyed the barrier the dividing yeah. wall that keeps us apart and yeah no i i appreciate what you're doing i hope that as you continue to to work and do what you do with cat and you know mm. that you will build a big house for people and mm. um it'll be a house that won't have any walls in it you know mm. but it'll have a big roof you know and it'll yeah. shelter people and it'll keep people safe whether that's a physical space or whether that's a metaphor for your your vocation of your life. You yeah, know? thanks. I received that. It's beautiful. For all of us, you know. Yeah. We're called to build a big roof, you know, and um, uh, shelters people and uh, keeps people safe and uh, under which we all are one. You know? Yeah. And I think in particular, thanks, Johnny. I really appreciate that. I think in particular people are sensing, and there has been a real shift where justice issues that – Previously, when I was in my early 20s, people had no idea what was being talked about or going on unless you were in the like um, university socialist group or the, the anarchist activist group or um, these kind of little subcultures. And suddenly the language for that um, and um, justice is in the air in such ways that, um, I mean, it's, it's wonderful that it's being talked about, but there's starting to be such... And anxiety, but what do we do with it? Like, what, what is that all we're left with is um, victims and victimizers. And I think some of the work that you're doing in these areas and the stories you told, like these are, are people that you've in, introduced me to and I've heard their stories and um, I've felt like the ridiculous situation where I'm speaking in a context where people have these stories and they're like, it's such a humbling experience but these stories here are almost for that next stage so once we do all the calling out how do we call in how do we address issues of our prisons and who are there not just merely they're the bad guys but okay what do we do with those in terms of on redemption on the other side what does it look like for those of us who have been formed in places where our families have been named as terrorists what does it look like on the other side Mm. when we've been written off and I think some of the things that are happening at Ankuin and um, the spaces that you hold where we have identities on the other side where we can be the kind of 
families that actually heal, that mm. are really safe. And the justice we're interested in is healing justice instead of a punitive, wrathful, where we rightly feel like we can throw stones and yet we're still throwing them in the air and experiencing that fall down on its on us. So I, I, I'm excited for the future of this place and where your, your podcast, um, your films um, and your ministry uh, are going and how important it is. So mm-hmm. thanks, mate. Thanks, Jared. Bless you.